Good morning, church family. Glad you're here today for each one. I know you had different kinds of weeks, some of you exciting, great weeks, some of you maybe harder weeks, and uh, that you come together and worship Jesus with us. We're thankful that you're here. If you're a guest, I want to say hello to you, especially thank you for coming, coming to a movie theater and uh, checking us out. Maybe you were involved in some way with somebody serving uh, last week or this weekend and um, something along those lines uh, would have been great. Um, if you weren't part of Southbridge Serves, you didn't get one of these cool t-shirts, I'm sorry. Um, but we are glad that you're here today. And we had about, uh, it was over 200 people that served this weekend in various different areas. And so this is a, kind of the culmination of that weekend. This morning we had people serving at the Meadows on Friday night, um, cleaning up horse stuff in different places, and uh, doing gardening. I'm not kidding about that, by the way. And uh, handing out doing a food drive. we still got people tonight that are going to be collecting food for a food drive uh, for the Durham Rescue Mission. And so we've been doing lots of stuff uh, throughout the weekend to serve our community. And today, after second service today, right now, 1230, we're going to have a chili cook-off. And so if you like chili, we'd invite you to come. You don't need a ticket or anything like that. There is a such thing as a free lunch in this world, and uh, we're going to show you that. And if you don't like chili, maybe you're a vegetarian, there's other stuff there. So we'd love for you to come as well, and we will not judge you. So we'd love to have you. There's hot dogs. I know those aren't vegan hot dogs, but uh, there's other stuff that's there. Uh, inflatables for the kids, face painting, all that kind of stuff. But here's why I want you to come. If you're a part of this church, the reason why I want you to come is because this is going to be part of uh, something we invited the community to as well. So I want you to come there and be Jesus to some of the people that we'll come into contact with. Your kids will have fun. We'll enjoy being together as a church family. But maybe you can bump into some of the firemen that show up or different folks that come that were invited over this weekend. And so that's why I'd love to invite you. And if you just come because you want a free lunch, I won't judge you. I can't promise anyone else will, but I won't judge you. I promise. I'll try not to. God, please don't let me. Um, but we're, we're glad each one of you are here. If you are a guest, if you'd fill out the little card that's in your worship program, just drop it in the offering boxes on your way out or take it out the first-time guest kiosk. So if you take it, we don't want you to put any money in the offering boxes. If you take it out the first-time kiosk, in fact, we won't ask you to give money today. We want to give you something. So if you take it out there, we've got a gift for you. There's some information about that in your worship program. And uh, you'll probably also know, and some of you may be, be here today because we're doing part two in our series called Trending Now. Now, in this series, we're going to cover a lot of different topics. It's not just about why bad stuff happens. We're going to cover everything from God and science, homosexuality, marriage, God's will, God's love, um, different things that you ask questions about in the month of September when we were asking if you had a question for God, what would you ask him? But overwhelmingly, the biggest question you ask, and so that's why we're doing at least two messages on this topic, is why does bad stuff happen? And so today we're going to do part two of that, and uh, we're going to pray. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, if you want to get there early. Um, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. And uh, I'm going to pray for us. We'll jump into the, the message here in just a moment. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we get to gather together as uh, your followers. I pray right now that as we open up your word, that you'd speak to our hearts. Thank you that you've given us your word. Uh, thank you that we don't just have to make up um, how to worship you on our own, that you speak to us. You tell us how to do it. You give us instructions. You tell us who you are. Uh, you even tell us that your ways and our ways are not the same, and help us to trust you in that. I pray as we talk about a, a topic that is very personal and very real for all of us, that those that are hurting, you'd bring healing, and those that have questions, you'd give answers, and uh, those that are skeptics, that you'd bring them to your son Jesus, you'd bring an overwhelming conviction of their sin and their need for you, that they would realize this is not an intellectual exercise, that they need a relationship with your son Jesus. I pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So if God is good, why does bad stuff happen? If God is sovereign, why doesn't he stop it? If God is loving, why would he allow pain in our lives? And those are kind of the vague, the general, the ambiguous questions about, about bad stuff happening, the why question. But when we asked you last month, if you could ask God any question, what would you ask him? People were far more personal than that. And I talked about it last week. Some of you asked questions like, why did my husband die? <laughs> 
Well, somebody in our church asked that question. Why did my babies die? Why do innocent people suffer? Why is there cancer? Why did our twins die? Why did my dad have to suffer so much? Those are personal questions. And I shared with you last week, this is a complex topic and it deserves more than just a simple answer. But there is a simple answer. The simple answer is, all this stuff happens because of sin. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, uh, there was no divorce with Adam and Eve. There was no abuse. Babies weren't dying. There was no cancer. There was no crying. There were no natural disasters. Because you start talk, looking around our world, look what happens. Why are terrorists allowed to steal planes? And why do planes crash into buildings? And why are there car accidents? And why is there cancer? And why is there divorce and disease and disaster and all this stuff? None of that was happening back in the Garden. Then Genesis chapter 3 happens, there's sin, and we're in a sin-broken, fallen world. Now there's coming a time, and you read at the end of the Bible, so if you read the last couple chapters in the Bible, the first couple chapters in the Bible, there's no sin. And do you know what happens? For those who are in Christ, those who don't know Christ, it gets way worse than this, by the way. But those who are in Christ, there's coming a time where there's no suffering, there's no pain, he's going to wipe tears from every eye, there's no abuse, there's no divorce, there's no difficulty, there's no diseases, there's no disasters, babies aren't dying, dads aren't suffering, none of that stuff's happening. When we're with Christ, because there's no sin, because Jesus rules, he reigns, he binds Satan, and he deals with sin. But we still live in this time right here. So we're going to answer the question, the why question, real quick. But what about my suffering? What about my pain? I still live here, and I still live right now. What about this? And so last week we talked about that from a big picture perspective. When we looked at the, guy, or the book of Job, Job's a, the character in the Bible, and there's a book that bears his name, the Old Testament, just for the Psalms. If you weren't here last week, I challenge you to go back and listen to that message. It's foundational for what we're going to talk about this week. But in Job chapter 1, we saw that Job breaks down into three sections. It's verses 1 through 5, verses 6 through 12, verses 13 through 22. Verses 1 through 5 in Job chapter 1, the dude's got it made. He's loaded. He's got all kinds of businesses going. Uh, he's got camels. He's got sheep. He's got female donkeys that we were learned were a delicacy. They were probably free-range, gluten-free donkeys that were roaming around out there. And he's got sheep. He's got all this stuff. He's got 10 kids. He's got a family that loves each other. It says he fears God. He shuns evil. He's blameless. He's upright. What happens in Job chapter 1, the author's making clear, is not because of his sin. Then we get verses 6 through 12, unique part of the Bible. The only place where we get God and Satan having a conversation with each other about somebody on earth. And what we see in verses 6 through 12 is the why of what's taking place in Job's life. But then we got verses 13 through 22, the wheels fall off on Job's life. All Job knows is verses 1 through 5, verses 13 through 22. In verses 13 through 22, every business fails at the same time. Terrorists kill his employees. The travel industry is hijacked. His kids die all in one day, 10 in one day. And some of you come to me afterwards and say, I can't imagine one child, then 10 children. He went from having 10 children to being childless in one day. It's the worst thing that could happen to his life. And here's the bad part. He didn't know why. In fact, you read all of Job's life, and for his entire life on this earth, he did not know why it happened. But what happens is God gives us a gift in Job chapter 1 as followers of his. He gives us his word, and he had the divinely inspired author of the book of Job. It was like he pulled the curtain back, and he was telling us a secret, like, hey, come here. I want to show you something. Job doesn't know why. And that's where most of you live. You're living your life verses 1 through 5, and you're trying to be good, and you're doing the right stuff, and the wheels fall off sometimes, 13 through 22. Maybe not to the extent it happened to Job, but in different degrees it happens to us. And what the author's showing us is there's a why. You might not know why, but you can always know there is a why. And you worship and serve and follow the God of the why. He was in control of all this stuff happening. Not because he's evil, not because he's not sovereign, not because he doesn't love you. 
but there's a why. You don't always know why, but you can always know there's a why. And so we talked about it from big picture last week. Today we're going to drill down a little bit. We're going to get practical into our lives, more, more pragmatic even, and see one of, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons why, practically speaking, pain, difficulty, suffering, disaster, disease, divorce, abuse, all those things happen in our lives. And we're going to look at it in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, we're in John chapter 9. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. You, the, the story that we're looking at today really goes all the way through verse 41. In John chapter 9, we just don't have time to cover the whole thing. In John chapter 9, what's taking place is the context, obviously John chapter 8. You should always check the context. because People can make the Bible say stuff it doesn't really say, but when you put in context, it's really hard to do that. In John chapter 8, what's going on is they're having the, the Feast of the Tents, the Feast of the Tabernacles, sometimes you'll see it called in the Bible. Think this. Think Cameron Crazies, Okay camping out in their tents. They're excited. They're going to worship. Just saying. They're going to worship. They're ready. So people are camped out in all these tents. They're there to worship. They're there to celebrate. They've traveled from all over the world. And they come to the temple to worship, and there'd be these huge torches, four huge torches inside the temple. They'd be as tall as the, the temple walls. They'd be burning. They'd be dancing all night at those things. In John chapter 8, what happens is the next day after they're out partying and celebrating all that, is that Jesus comes in. He says, I'm the light of the world. And people are confused by this, a little upset by this. By the end of John chapter 8, Jesus has told them, I'm God who existed before I came in the flesh. The religious leaders want to kill him. Jesus gets away. We don't know how. Jesus may have had ninja moves we don't know about. He may have just blinded them for a second and vanished. We don't know how he got away because you read it and you're like, how did they not kill him? Like, he's standing there. He says who he is. They want to kill him. And then he gets away. Like, how does this happen? So... Jason Bourne stuff taking place there at the end of John chapter 8. John chapter 9 comes up. Jesus is walking along with his 12 disciples. And he addresses the why question. Look at it. John chapter 9, starting verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, so all 13 of them are walking together. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? First off, the guy's blind. He's not deaf. Talk about an insensitive situation here. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answers, verse 3, you're asking the wrong question. Neither this man nor his parents, you want to know the cause, I'm going to tell you the purpose. But this happened so that, key words in the Bible, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Verse 4, he's speaking to his disciples, Jesus speaking here, as long as this day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Context, John chapter 8. He's trying to show his disciples he's the light of the world. The man's an illustration. He's a real man, but he's showing them something. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent, the pool of Siloam. The word Siloam means sent. He's sending this man, which is interesting, especially since Jesus even calls himself the sent one, just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. There's a message in there. And so the man went, and he washed, and he came home seeing. Here's a guy who never knew light, lived his entire life from birth in darkness, and Jesus shows him, I'm the light of the world. I can bring light to your world. And he's walking along with his disciples. Don't think about what a difficult situation he's looking into. Here's a guy who, if you, know, if you just think about it, obviously he's got the physical disability, so there's physical pain in his life. But he's never been able to see. What was that like growing up in a time before political correctness, before Braille, before any of our technology? Do you think he was bullied? His parents don't have the money to take care of him. His parents basically throw him under the bus later in this passage and say, he's a grown man. He can speak for himself. 
He's out begging, we see in verse 8. He's got financial difficulty. He knows emotional pain. He knows physical pain. Certainly, you'd ask the why question. Once you come to the age, see, he was born. He doesn't know everyone else can't see, but there had to be a moment where he realized there's other people experiencing life in a different way than I am. So he knows emotional pain. He knows spiritual pain. He knows financial pain. He knows physical pain. Each one of us can probably relate to this guy at some level, maybe not all of them. And the disciples decide they're going to ask a question. They're going to use the guy sitting here as an opportunity to talk to Jesus about this theological issue that we've all wondered about before. Why does bad stuff happen? And what Jesus does is he shows them, if you knew the cause, the cause isn't going to do anything. If you know the cause, what does that do? What if I say it's his parents? What if I say it's him? What if I say it's someone else? Then you have someone to point the finger at. It doesn't alleviate any suffering. It doesn't deal with any of this. It doesn't make it any easier. And it doesn't make it go away. Instead, let me tell you a better answer. Let me tell you the why, the purpose why. Not the cause, the purpose. And the cause is, I'm going to use it, verse 3, to put God's work on display in his life. And so our main point today is a phrase you've heard me say before. That God uses our pain as his platform to point people to Christ. He uses our pain as his platform to point people ultimately to Jesus Christ. You could say, or to bring himself glory, to do his work in our lives, to put his work on display. It's his platform in our lives. And just think about it. Think about the book of Job. We read Job. We wouldn't read Job if it was just verses 1 through 5. No one's going to that. Okay, there's a rich guy, long time ago. He loved God. His family all got along with each other. Great for Job. Why do we go to Job? It's because he experienced so much suffering. And we take comfort in a guy who was faithful, even through all that suffering, who asked the difficult questions, who went through those, and, and then has this encounter with God. And so th- we see this happen in life. But that's why so many people have gone to the book of Job. It's his platform thousands of years later to speak into your life and into my life because of God's pain, because of the difficulty that came. You look at this guy that we're reading about in John chapter 9. Who's reading John chapter 9 if this guy can see his whole life, is married, has two and a half kids, maybe you'd read because of that, uh, has two and a half kids, There's a dog and a cat and a white picket fence. No one's reading that. His platform to speak into our lives thousands of years later is because of his pain. And God uses that now in in this world now. I was reading a book this week. I recommend to you on this topic if you want to dig deeper in this topic by Randy Alcorn. He's the best-selling author of a book called Heaven. You may have seen that book. Some of you had questions about Heaven as well. But this book is called If God is Good. And I was looking specifically at a chapter, this is a lot more than you're going to cover in two sermons, by the way, it's about 500 pages, but there's one chapter in here where he talks specifically about disabilities. And in it, he talks about a time when a friend of his named David O'Brien, who has severe uh, cerebral palsy, invited him to come speak at a conference for people with disabilities. And uh, the way that it was going to work is that Randy, the pastor, was going to speak three times, and David was going to speak once. And uh, he says in in the book, while David's brilliant... He's not always the easiest to understand, and David knows that. And so he had asked uh, Pastor Elkhorn, Randy, to read his message while he would speak it, kind of like an interpreter. And so David would stand up and and speak, and then Randy would read what he had just said so that the audience all understood what was taking place. And what Randy does in the book is he describes David's message, and David starts off in his message talking about a story in Genesis um, where there's a guy named Jacob, and maybe you've read this story before, and he wrestles with God. In fact, it's a man that they identify as God. Some people think it was the pre-incarnate Christ, and they wrestle together, and he's saying he's not going to let go of God until God blesses him. What God does is he touches his thigh and takes his hip out of place, and the guy walks with He doesn't heal him. He walks with a limp for the rest of his life. And then David, in his sermon, talks about how God blessed him with that disability. Because it was a constant reminder of his need. Here's a guy who's got severe disability in his life. 
And he's saying that disability is a blessing. And he quotes a verse from Exodus where God's speaking to Moses. And he says, who made a man blind? Who made a man deaf? Who made a man mute? And he talks about how God doesn't just permit disability. He creates disability. And he talks about it as someone with a disability, as a, as a blessing from God. He says this, God knows the spirit and the will in each person, and he shapes the body to mold that will to his purpose. In other words, he uses the disabilities to bring our wills to him. So God's platform in our lives isn't just to point other people to Christ, it's to bring us to Christ. And Elkhorn in the book talks about how after he read that, this, the other guy is speaking the message, but he said after he read that, he looked out in the audience and he sees all these people. It's a conference of people with twisted bodies and atrophied muscles. And he said they're groaning to God in affirmation for the things that are being said. And what happens then is that David, he goes on, he reads from our passage. And he talks about in verse 3 where it says, so that God's works will be put on display. He says, this rules out haphazardness, demonic control, or bad luck. Rather, Jesus declares a deliberate divine purpose in that blindness. And then he goes on to say how Jesus had suffering in his life and how God used that suffering to teach Jesus obedience. So some of us will go, wait, is that really true? Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 5. If it wasn't in the Bible, I would question it too. It says that God uses that to then teach Jesus obedience. So if Jesus has suffering to teach him obedience, how are we going to just avoid suffering? It's not going to happen. In fact, Jesus tells us, in this world, you will have trouble. But I've overcome the world. And you know what you get? You get me. And that's what I give you through the suffering. It's my platform to speak not only into other people's lives through you, but to speak into your life. David, this man with severe disability, says this in his message too. This quote really stuck out to me, so I want to read it to you. It says, God tailors a package of suffering best suited for each of his own. Our suffering is customized to us. We all have an opportunity to grow through this suffering. And then he says something that I think is prophetic. And Pastor Elkhorn thinks is prophetic as well. He says, dare I question God's wisdom in making me the way that I am? And he ends his speech, his sermon, by saying, if I didn't have cerebral palsy, I would be out racing the fastest race car that there is. People kind of chuckled and laughed. and It was a light way to make a point. He's saying... I'd be satisfied with lesser things. Instead, I'm satisfied with Christ. I'd be distracted by lesser things. Instead, I value Christ the most. Because of my disability, he's used as a platform to point me to him. And so he talks about his disability as a gift, his suffering as a gift from God. See, if you're a skeptic, the answers that we're going to talk about from this passage will mean nothing to you. Let me tell you why. Some of you came here hoping that I wouldn't answer the question. You have another reason not to believe. Here's the deal. If you don't believe, the best that can possibly be, suffering can be for you, is meaningless. And what it oftentimes will be is torturous. Because you don't understand that what you get is ultimately Him. It's Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying here in this passage about this man. Try and imagine what's happening in this passage. These guys are walking along. There's 13 of them walking along. It's Jesus and his 12 disciples. But I want you to notice something in verse 1. It says that Jesus is the one who saw him. It says he saw him. Third person singular, not third person plural. Not they saw him. There's 13 guys walking away. That's significant. What did they see? Well, remember, it's the last day of the Feast of Tents. There's been a big celebration. So if you want to picture this scene, try and picture um, New Orleans after Mardi Gras. Or Times Square after the ball drops. Or here in Raleigh, after the fair leaves town. Okay? 
leftover fried stuff, right? It's there. It's all over the ground. Wrappers and all that kind of business. And, and people are tired out. They sit up too late the night before. That's what's going on. And they're walking through the streets. They're probably coming into the temple because this man's begging, verse 8. That's where a lot of beggars would hang out. They'd bank on people's charitableness as they went into worship. As he's walking with his disciples, he sees this man. What does he see? Utter poverty. This guy's begging. And you think of the worst poverty you've ever seen in your life. Probably not here in America, for those of you who've traveled outside this country. I heard one person uh, say who's not from this country, who doesn't want to come to America, where even the poor people are fat? We've got such an abundance of stuff. That's the point. He wasn't talking about we don't work out enough. He's just talking about there's lots of stuff. Who doesn't want all this? This isn't the situation this guy's in. If you've been in third world, that's that kind of situation that we're talking about. And he's begging. His parents can't take care of him. Financial difficulty, pain. And they all walk by and they all notice him. But verse 1, it's John's making a point. John's one of the 12 guys that was there, but he doesn't say we saw him. It says he saw him. 13 guys are walking, but verse 1 says Jesus is the one who saw him. John's making a point there, that Jesus sees our pain. In fact, if you go through the Bible, you'll see the first title that's given to God by a human being is in the book of Genesis. When there's a woman that's in severe suffering, she's fleeing to the desert because she wants to die. And she has an encounter with God, and then she says, you're the God who sees. Her name's Hagar. You see in the book of Exodus that God says to Moses when he's at the burning bush, I've seen the misery of my people, people that have been in bondage, people that have been trapped. In slavery. Because I've seen their misery. I've heard their cry. If you go through the Gospels, what you see is there's an emphasis there that Jesus sees pain. Especially in Matthew and in Mark. It says he sees and he had compassion. He sees and he had compassion. He sees a woman whose son dies. It says he sees he was moved with compassion. He sees a group of people that are following him around. They're trying, he's trying to get alone to pray and be with his disciples. They keep following him. Everywhere they go, he goes, they're following him. And he says he lands on the shore, and he sees they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless. And he was moved with compassion, which means that God sees the pain, and his emotions are actually moved by the pain. So let me just pause and say this. Some of you have been suffering in secret. Meaning, you think no one else knows, or maybe no one else does know the circumstances. They certainly don't know the way you've been thinking about the circumstances. They don't know your thoughts. They don't know the struggles. God sees you. You may feel lonely. God's there. He has not abandoned you, and He sees your suffering. Jesus saw this man. The other guys noticed the situation, but they didn't see. Jesus so he saw the man, and his disciples asked him a question. They decided they were going to use this as an opportunity to bring up a theological question. And so they asked the question, who sinned, this guy or his parents? It's got to be somebody's fault. They probably have good motives here. They're probably trying to clear God of any kind of potential guiltiness of making innocent people suffer. And so they've come up with this conclusion, since God always punishes sin, which is true, which is in the Bible, then this must be a punishment for someone's sin. So whose sin is it a punishment for? Now, we've already seen last week when we were looking at the book of Job, you can't always make those conclusions. Because from our perspective, we see stuff, we see suffering, but we don't know what's really going on. And so you see Job loses kids, David loses a kid. Without knowing what the Bible says, now David loses a kid in 2 Samuel because of his sin. Job loses 10 kids. It doesn't have anything to do with his sin. So we probably shouldn't be speaking into people's lives when they lose kids and saying we know what's going on because we don't know. Unless God specifically tells us, which he did in the Bible, he doesn't have that written down to us now, 
You don't know. We see that natural disasters in Job chapter 1. Business is wiped out. That's how his kids were killed. We see natural disaster in the book of Genesis with Noah. Noah had natural disaster because there was so much wrath in the world. Because there was so much sin in the world. That God regretted he made man and wiped them out. Job didn't have anything to do with his sin. So when Hurricane Katrina comes and hits New Orleans, and there's a bunch of people saying, oh, it's because of Mardi Gras. Well, is there sin in Mardi Gras? Sure, yes, there is. Is there a bad thing that happened? Yes, there is. You know why? Nope, you don't have verses 6 through 12. You don't know. You shouldn't say why. What the disciples are trying to do here is they're trying to say something without knowing what they're talking about. So they're saying it's got to be the parents' fault, or it's got to be the kids' fault. Now that he was born blind. Okay, kids are sinning in the womb? Really? Now, mothers, maybe you can speak to this better than I could experience it because I have not had a child in my belly. I know some of you have had very active children. You may be convinced children are sinning in the womb. Okay, I understand that. Do you know they actually believed then, and the disciples reveal some of this here, but they actually believed that a mother, even if she had bad, evil thoughts while she was pregnant, it would have a moral effect on her child. And that's where the, some of the suffering could come from. So think about that. How many of you that have been pregnant, so this is just speaking to the, the ladies here who have children, did you have any bad thoughts while you were pregnant? Oh, yes. Any amens, high-pitched amens, maybe? Um, yes, remember when you were so big, you felt like you couldn't move? Not that I saw, I didn't see, I didn't notice that. But you probably felt that. You couldn't roll over in bed, and you couldn't sleep at night. Any sinful thoughts at that moment? Or any gluttonous cravings? We won't tell on you. You can come to the chili cook-off today. I think that currently pregnant women are probably exempt from sin. Someone told me that after the first service. And so, they're immune. What about when you are in labor? Any thoughts about your husband? Just saying. You answer. You hopefully confessed that when we did communion. So is it the mom's fault? Is what the disciples are saying? Is it the person's fault? And Jesus is going, you're asking the wrong questions. And even if you knew the answers to that, it doesn't solve anything. Let me tell you the answer. Here's the answer. Verse 3, so that God's work will be put on display in this guy's life. Here's why. It's God's platform in his life. And guess what Jesus is saying here? I'm going to speak into your life through his pain. He's doing this to teach the disciples something. And what happens is, you, know, you jump down to verses 6 and 7, Jesus walks over next and he spits on the ground. He's not being gross, he's not being rude. And that time, actually culturally, they believed that the saliva had a lot of medicinal value. So he's actually acting like the great physician, a doctor. He spits in the ground into the dirt, which man's created out of, by the way. He takes the dirt, rubs it together, becomes like clay, wipes it on the man's eyes. So apparently he had eyes, it says in verses 6 and 7. He's not just creating brand new eyes, although he could have done that as well. He wipes the mud on the man's eyes, then he tells the man to go to a pool. We don't know how far away the pool is, but apparently it's some distance because Jesus and his disciples aren't there when he washes in it. And he goes to this pool called Scent. He goes off, and I try to put myself in the situation of the blind guy here. And I think to myself, so some guy comes up, I've never heard his voice before, I don't know who he is, and he wipes mud on my face. Now, I've been bullied as a kid. I've been mocked as a kid. If I'm this blind guy, I'm thinking about this. Is this another situation? Is someone just making fun of me again? Do they just rub something on my face? Or is it what's happening here? Or am I so desperate that I think that maybe there's some hope in this? Maybe something will happen. And so I go. And so he goes on this journey of obedience to Jesus, a walk of faith, really. And we don't know how far it is. And he gets to this pool. And he washes in the pool. And then verse 7 tells us that he, after he washed in the pool, see, when he left, when Jesus put mud on his eyes, he still couldn't see. But when he gets up out of the water, he can see. What do you think it was like to see for the first time? Never seen in his life. Doesn't know what light looks like. Has been in darkness his entire life and opens his eyes and there's light. And then I wonder what the first thing he saw was. Was it a building? Was it a person? 
Was it a color? I was reading this week, I read about Helen Keller, who didn't receive her sight, but she talks about how when she learned to communicate sign language in her hand, that it, it was like she, it was a whole new world is open to her. What kind of new world is open to this guy? I read about one guy uh, one time that, that he talked about never being able to see his whole life. He had a surgery that allowed him to be able to see, and he tried to describe things, and he said, yellow is just so yellow. What words do you have for it if you've never seen it before? This guy, the guy that I read about, he said that red was his favorite color. So he was so fascinated by red. What was it like for this man to see for the first time? And I wonder what he wanted to see. Like, I wonder if he wondered, what does my mom look like? Is she as pretty as I think? Is my dad as strong as I think? What about the memories we've made? What about this place? What about where I beg all the time? Who are these guys that are my friends? He can see. And then God uses that. That's his platform. See, the guy doesn't have a platform just because he can see. Everyone else in the story can see. We're not reading about them because they can see. He has a story because he was blind and now he can see. It's because of the pain that becomes his platform to now speak into our lives. And what does he do? He points people to Christ. I wish we had time to go through all 41 verses in chapter 9 because what happens is then we see a progress where he talks about the man who helped him see and he calls him the man. Then he calls him a prophet. By the time you get to the end, verses 40, 41 in that range, he's worshiping Jesus. He's pointing people to Christ as a result of his pain that becomes the platform and then speaks into our lives, speaks into the lives of the disciples. That God uses this and God still does that today. He still uses our pain to then be a platform to speak into our lives and into the lives of others. I heard a woman share a story this week. Her name is Sean Pierce. And Sean serves uh, at a ministry called Joni and Friends that many people that struggle with disabilities are disabled or have loved ones that are, are familiar with. And so if not, you may check out Joni and Friends. But uh, Sean told about in her story how they had um, her and her husband given birth to a little girl named Alicia who was their sweet baby girl but had several disabilities. Uh, cerebral palsy was one of them. Uh, she was blind. She had a seizure disorder that they didn't know how to explain and didn't even know how to label it. And it was tough. And it was hard on their family. It was hard on their marriage. It was so hard on their marriage, they got divorced. And Sean talked about a time where she got so low that she wanted to take her own life and she wanted to take the life of her daughter. And so the only thing that stopped her from killing herself and killing her daughter was that she wasn't sure if she did that, if she'd end up in heaven. And so instead of killing her daughter, what she did is she put her daughter in a car seat and drove her down to the local Baptist church. And she thought, I hope that the Baptists have the answers. And she went inside. She talked to the pastor. She said that church didn't know it at the time, but they had a special needs ministry. She wasn't talking about a program. She was talking about people loving on her. Because she said what ended up happening wasn't that they had some program for their kid. What ended up happening was that people started showing up with meals at her house. And a nurse that was in the congregation started going over to her house every day to just give her 20 minutes so she could take a shower. Because Alicia, their little girl, required constant supervision. So she didn't have time to take a shower. And so the nurse would come over and just give her that relief. And people bring groceries over. One time they paid her rent. And what she said, I, I came to this realization, God does see what's going on. Amen. And he does care. And he must have a plan for my life. And she ended up getting down on her knees and praying to receive Jesus as her savior. And then she started praying for her husband. And it took five years, but five years later, her husband came to Christ. And then their marriage got reconciled. They got back together. They got remarried. And as she was sharing the story, she talked about how four years ago, her daughter, Alicia, then, then passed away. She was 18 years old at the time. But what greater purpose could Alicia's life have served than to bring her parents to Christ? 
It was God's platform. That pain was God's platform to bring them to Christ. And if you believe what David, the guy from the Randy Elkhorn book said, God knows exactly what way. And there's no other way for many of us than the difficulty that brings into our lives to then bring our hearts to him. How many people have you met that have said, you know, when I grew closest to Christ was when everything was easy. Rarely, I'm not saying God can't do it, but rarely is God using our comforts and our conveniences to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. Oftentimes, he's using our suffering and our difficulty. And then it becomes a platform, not just to speak into other people's lives, but in our very lives. Because it's in that that we realize we need him. And it becomes obvious how it's a platform when you read a guy like the guy that's born blind here. Let me ask you this. If he's walking into the temple, which we don't know he is, if he's walking into the temple, he heals the blind guy. Awesome. What about all the other people that are there? What about the leper? What about the person who can't hear and doesn't even realize what's taking place? What about the other blind people? What about the guy who has no legs? Because there's a bunch of people that are out there that are begging. They didn't get healed today. What about all the people who don't get healed? What about some of you that are suffering? And you're not going to beat cancer. What about, we can t- I can tell you stories about people that are willing to lay their lives down for Jesus and then Jesus delivers them, but what about the Syrian believers right now? We can talk about all the healings and the miraculous deliverances. What about six million Jews dying? What about that? And what can happen is we read verses 1 through 3 and we see what's happened and we kind of skimmed over verses 4 and 5 and then we read verses 6 and 7. We see the deliverance. We see the healing. But you've got to go back to verses 4 and 5. Remember the context of John chapter 8, verse 12, that I am the light of the world. And what he's doing here is about more than just healing one blind guy. He's preparing and training these disciples, these 12 guys that are walking with him. They're going to be the guys that go out and start a movement called the local church, which is why we meet here, that's recorded in the book of Acts. And what he's doing is he's speaking into their lives. Go look at verses 4 and 5 that we are real easy to read over. Look at what it says. It says, as long as it is day, in other words, there's limited time. We all have limited time. Jesus knew the cross was coming. Each one of us, our life is a vapor. He said, as long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Your time will be up. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What he's teaching his disciples here is this. I proclaim that I'm the light of the world, but it's more than just words. Do you see how I just took a guy in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, and you're asking questions that even if I gave you the answers would not alleviate any pain in your own life? How I took a guy who lived in darkness, he knew nothing but darkness, and I just gave him light. You can trust me in suffering. And who is he speaking to? Go to verse 4. As long as his day, he doesn't say, I must... Do the work of him who sent me. Now, it makes sense to say it that way. Especially when you consider the circumstance and who's with them. These 12 guys are freeloaders. And I say that in the kindest, most gracious way I can possibly say it. But read the Gospels. Jesus is doing all the work. Jesus is healing people. Jesus is doing all the teaching. These guys are around asking dumb questions all the time. They're just making more work for Jesus. And he says here, we must do, not I must do the work of him who sent me. My time's coming up. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I, he's saying, we must, not I, we must do the work. Who's he speaking to? Think about those guys. Twelve men. None of them will experience deliverance. All of them will experience suffering. One, when suffering comes into his life, suffering being Jesus isn't giving me what I want, he realizes That Jesus is not most valued. He's a skeptic. Jesus is not most treasured. And so when the pain comes, he realizes that best it's meaningless, he kills himself, by the way. His name is Judas. What a gift that God gave him to not die and then be surprised. 
that his faith gets tested, and he realizes he doesn't have faith. Now, here's the thing. A faith that's not tested is a faith that should not be trusted. I remember an older pastor, Crawford Leritz, one time telling me that I shouldn't trust anybody as a spiritual leader or a leader in my life that hasn't experienced pain because they don't even know if they can trust themselves. Because a faith that's not trusted, that hasn't been tested, can't be trusted. What a gift to Judas. Now he failed, and, and, and I hate that he didn't end up trusting Christ. I hate that. But he wasn't deceived. He knew. What about the other guys? Ten of the eleven guys will be martyred. The one who isn't martyred gets boiled alive. His name is John, the guy who writes this book, who ends up being imprisoned in the book of Revelation in the Lion of Patmos. It's not deliverance. You're going to go through the suffering, and I'm going to be there to sustain you through the suffering. So it's not just deliverance. I'm going to sustain you in it. And what about Peter? He gets crucified upside down. What about Jesus himself? He says we. He doesn't just say your. He says we, our suffering. But Jesus himself. What about, it's not like Jesus didn't know the work that was coming for him. He knew he was going to go to the cross. Hundreds, 600, maybe 700 years before the Gospels are written, before Jesus walked the earth, the prophet Isaiah said what would happen in the life of Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, it's spelled out. It says, surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. In other words, he's going to be killed. But he was pierced for, not his own, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was brought, that brought us peace was upon him. It's because of his suffering. It's because of his wounds that we are healed. And so when he's hanging on the cross and he has the ability to call out to legions of angels to come deliver him, he doesn't experience deliverance. He experiences the wrath of the Father being poured out on him because of your sin, because of my sin, that we've done that's separated us from God, that he wants us to have a relationship with God. And so it's his suffering that becomes his platform speaking to our lives to connect us to him. So what do we get? You know, I suffer, and there is a why. I totally understand that. And it says God's platform, great for God. What do I get? You know what you get? You get him. And that's why for the skeptic, the answer will not be satisfactory because you're not satisfied with him. You're destined to a life of meaningless pursuit, of self-satisfaction until you come to Christ. And when you come to Christ and realize he's most treasured, that he's the thing that will ultimately satisfy, then all the stuff that happens in this life, it delivers you to him. You get more of him? That's great. That is a gift. Then the suffering is a gift. But when those things are ultimate, that could be taken away, your kids, your job, your reputation, your health, when those are the things that you think are going to satisfy, of course it's devastating when they're taken away. Because that's what you worship. And so for the skeptic, you won't be satisfied with knowing God's real answer to this. It's that I give you myself. I'm not a bully. I'm not an able. I'm not mean. I love you. I am sovereign. I'm so sovereign. I overrule the evil in this world to bring my ultimate glory, which is for your good, because you were created for my glory. To think about somebody who who wasn't delivered, what about the Apostle Paul? There's a guy that's written most of the New Testament, and you, you go turn on TV and you hear preachers preaching the New Testament. They talk about if you follow Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy and happy. And you look at, well, Jesus, the guy that we're following, got crucified. Uh, these guys were martyred. The one who wasn't martyred gets boiled alive. That doesn't sound like healthy, happy, wealthy, like I'm looking for at least. 
Uh, and then there's Paul. Paul writes most of the New Testament. What happens to Paul? He gets in prison, shipwrecked, stoned, flogged five times. Uh, he's got the emotional burdens of all these churches that he started. Not only that, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that he experienced so much suffering, he despaired of life itself. He wanted to die. And so sometimes you hear Christians, and they, they mean well with these platitudes. They're just wrong, and it's not bi- biblical. They say things like, God will never give you something more than you can handle. That's garbage. It's not true. And once you experience it, you're going to go, well, what, what about God? Because he wasn't supposed to give you more than I can handle. I can't handle this. No, God won't give you more than he can handle. He will give you more than you can handle all the time. So that then you'll trust him. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is all about. And Paul talks about that. I experienced more than I can handle. I despaired of life. I wanted to die. But God allowed it to happen so that I could then comfort you. It's a platform. And that I would then trust him more. And also shipwrecked in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and stoned and beaten and flogged and emotional pressures and all those difficulties. And then in chapter 12, he says, and I have a physical disability. So here's this guy that's writing most of the New Testament, and he's got a physical disability. God, why don't you heal him? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he tells us. I asked God to take it away because of a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. He says, I asked him to take it away three times. Three times God said no. So is God not sovereign? No, God's totally sovereign. He's capable of taking it away from Paul. Is God not loving? No, he loves Paul too much to take it away. Because look what he says. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know what Paul says in that passage? If he, didn't, if he took it away, I might become prideful. He's protecting me from myself. The suffering is a gift. But see, what most of us want is if there is suffering, we want it to be in the past and over with, and I just want to be done. And then deliverance or healing, so there's not deliverance or healing, so then what do I do? And what we want to do is we want to skip the process. And there's value in the process, because in the process, he transforms us to trust him more, to love him more, to know him more, and what we get is him. I remember when I was going through a difficult time, walking through the valley of the shadow of death type time for me, very dark. And didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm sitting there. I'm meeting with my counselor. We're talking about some of this stuff. I remember him sharing an analogy with me from a movie he had seen about mountain climbing. And he was talking about this movie and how the guy that was telling all about the different types of people that climb mountains. He says some people, uh, they, they hire a guide to take them up the mountain. And the guide basically does everything for them. Uh, could essentially put a mint on their pillow at the end of the night when they go to get in their tent. See, like it caters them uh, all the way through the deal. And he said those people might as well be at the base of the mountain and hire a helicopter to fly them to the top because for them, all it's about is getting to the summit. They just want to get to the top. And they're not thinking about the process. He said the problem for those people is they're a jerk when they're at the bottom of the mountain and they're a jerk when they're at the top of the mountain. Nothing changes. But there's some people that when they climb the mountain, they go through the process. And they are a different person at the bottom of the mountain than they are when they get to the top. And see, God uses the pain. It's like David from that Randy Elkhorn book says. It's a gift. And two of the guys in the book of Acts that God uses uh, to start the church are John, who writes the Gospel of John that we're reading right now, who learns this lesson from Jesus in the life of this blind man right here. The, the, the pain then becomes God's platform so that God uses the pain and he uses the suffering ultimately to accomplish the purpose that he has for my life, the very existence, the reason why I'm here on this earth. Then he embraces that. You know what happens in the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, Peter and John, they go out, they start preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, and it starts off really good. But then it gets really bad. The Sanhedrin says, if you talk about Jesus anymore, we're going to kill you. And they've got the authority and the power to do that. And then they keep talking about Jesus because they have to. And then what happens in chapter 5 is they don't keep their word. They don't kill Peter and John. They flog them, which is a severe torture. And then in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John say this. Acts chapter 5, 
verse 41. It says, The apostles, Peter and John specifically, left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You get to a place like that. Jesus has to be supreme. That's the answer. And what does Jesus do in the suffering? He shows himself supreme. He delivers him. What do we get? We get him. So God speaks to us in the pain and through the process. So what is God saying? Why is it that your husband died? Why is it that your babies died? Why is it that the twins died? Why is it that your dad suffered so much? Is it so that God could have a platform to speak into your life? Is it so that God could have a platform to speak into their lives? Or to speak through your life to someone else? And, and what is God saying to you right now? He sees your pain. You're not alone. C.S. Lewis is a famous quote. He says that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. But he shouts in our pain and our suffering. And that it's his megaphone, the pain. To awaken, to rouse a deaf world. What is God speaking to you? Let's pray. Father God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would come today, that you would bring healing to those that are hurting, hope to those who feel hopeless. I pray for those who've lost children. I pray specifically for them right now that you'd connect with them as a father who knows what it's like to lose a son. I pray, Father, for those that are going through physical suffering. I pray that you just help them to know that you see them, that you have a purpose, that you could heal, but maybe you have a different plan. And God, they, they would see it as a gift. And that through the process, you'd have them love you more, know you more, trust you more, and that you would show yourself to them. You'd show yourself faithful. You'd show yourself present. You'd show yourself loving. That you would be there. And that we as believers could suffer in ways different than the world suffers. And God, I pray for those who are skeptics. I pray that you would pierce their hearts with a conviction, an overwhelming conviction that could only come from you. That you draw them to yourself. They would realize this is not an intellectual exercise. This is not something if they check the right boxes and they'll come to the right conclusions. But it's ultimately about a relationship with you. And I pray that you give them a relationship with you right now. Overwhelm them with this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.